Thank you for listening to We Have Ways of Making You Talk. Sign up to our Patreon to receive bonus content, live streams and our weekly newsletter with money off books and museum visits as well. Plus early access to all live show tickets. That's patreon.com slash we have ways. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. We Have Ways of Making You Talk presents The Cauldron. By Zeno. Read by Al Murray. Chapter 2. The impact of the slipstream forced Bridgman's eyelids together, but he opened them again at once for no better reason than that almost everyone admitted keeping them closed until their shoots opened. It was a vanity he was ashamed of, but it was part of his character. The canopy cracked open above his head, and he reached up for the lift webs to check the oscillation of his swinging body. As he steadied, he looked about him. He was facing the north and could see the remainder of his stick stretching out in an ascending line in front of him. Looking up their line, he saw the last two figures quit the aircraft very close together. Away to the east, the remaining two sticks were dropping parallel with his own and only one or two hundred yards away. He had time to glimpse the wood on his left before the crack of single rifle shots attracted his attention. But before he could pinpoint the direction from which they came, the ground rushed up to meet him. He tried for a stand-up landing, but the final oscillation and the weight of his equipment proved too much for him, and he rolled over in the dry, sandy earth. He had twisted and struck the release box which held his harness together before he finished rolling, and within seconds he was on his feet, his Sten gun in his hands and the magazine fitted, although he could not remember fitting it. The New Zealand navigator had kept his word. The southeast corner of the wood lay under 25 yards from where he stood. The fallen shoots and the running figures of his men seemed to fill the great open field of the landing zone. It seemed too much to expect that in only half an hour from now he was to guide in nearly 200 gliders, some of them bigger than the biggest aircraft, of 15 second intervals. He stood quietly watching the apparent chaos of 47 men sorting themselves out and soon had the satisfaction of seeing a correct, comprehensible pattern of movement. He could hear firing away to the north and knew that either Tim Jordan or Gordon Brown, who commanded number three platoon and was his own closest friend, was having to fight for possession of his dropping zone. The rifle shots he had heard while still in the air he knew had come from his own area, but he had heard no more since landing. McEwen and his three men passed Bridgman as they headed for the rendezvous at the corner of the wood. They carried the Eureka, the radar homing device, and Bridgman resisted the temptation to accompany them and ensure that it was erected correctly and tuned into the right frequency. He could see Nash, his platoon sergeant, heading in the same direction, Murray and the remainder of headquarters section behind him. Nash had already thrown away his heavy steel helmet and replaced it with a camouflaged beret. As he passed within ten yards of Bridgman, he shouted, The shots came from the big house! They probably got scared and buggered off! The big sergeant kept on running, a controlled trot which covered the ground but did not exhaust his men. Bridgman turned back to watch the rest of the platoon. The organisation of platoon headquarters and the setting up of the radar set could be left safely to Nash. 
Leyland section had finished laying the giant 12-foot recognition letter in the centre of the landing zone and two men were running to the southern edge of the huge field. They dropped behind a fold in the ground and disappeared from sight. Bridgman watched the ditch long enough to see their hands appear and place coloured smoke canisters on its edge. When lighted, the drift of their smoke would indicate to the glider pilots the direction of the wind, enabling them to make the necessary turn so that they would land upwind and not across it. Gorman's section had disappeared into the wood, halfway up its hundred-yard length. Inside its cover, they would be moving up to its northern tip to protect the landing zone from any interference from that direction. Blake's section was in position in a ditch on the eastern extremity of the area on which the gliders were due to land. They were only 70 yards short of the big house from which Nash had said the shots had come. He was probably right in his guess that whoever had fired them had been impressed by their numbers and had cleared off. They could be only line of communication troops so far from the front, and parachutists in the air always appeared far more numerous than they really were. But it was just possible that the Germans might be commanded by a determined man who had stopped the firing and was waiting for the main drop. Bridgman decided he could not afford to take that chance. He and Bilting were the only men left on the dropping zone. He glanced at his watch. They had been on the ground for seven minutes. He had time enough, 23 minutes before the airborne division arrived. He walked the 25 yards which separated him from his rendezvous with platoon headquarters. His orders to the other sections would keep them away from the RV unless their landing had been so heavily opposed as to make their initial roles impossible to carry out. He slipped into the wood and was greeted by Nash. The sergeant's face was wreathed in smiles and the blue eyes on each side of his hooked nose shone with satisfaction. It's like a bloody exercise, sir. In fact, it's better. I've never known things go so smoothly. Dead on time, dead on the target, all landing aids out, not a casualty. He cocked his head and listened to the firing to the north of them. Either the old man or Mr Brown is not having it so easy. That was a Spandau. Bridgman looked quickly about him. Headquarters section under Sergeant Murray were lining the narrow southern edge of the wood, their weapons covering another thick wood running parallel to the Rhine. He had nothing to fear from the west, for on that side of the wood Phil Ramsden and Number 1 Platoon were carrying out a similar task to his own, except that instead of gliders they were to bring in a brigade of parachute troops, nearly 2,000 men. He turned back to his sergeant. I think you were probably right about the Jerrys who fired at us, but I shan't be completely happy till I've had a look. I don't want to break wireless silence, so send McEwen up to Gorman's section to check that he's all right. If I want any help, I'll get through on a 38 set. I might need Leyland's section or a bit of mortifier. You take over here. Nash shrugged his heavy shoulders. He was a good soldier, but he believed in taking things as they came. He disliked any movement he considered unnecessary. But Bridgman could be right. Bridgman walked up the inside of the wood with his runner, Bilting, behind him and found Leyland and his section relaxing along its eastern side. They were covered by Blake and his men, 300 yards away, on the opposite side of the landing zone. As Bridgman approached, the sergeant got to his feet. Quite enough, sir. It seems almost too good to be true. We're a long way behind the front. Intelligence said we should have no initial interference except from LFC troops and apart from those first few shots, they don't see much in evidence down here although they seem a bit busier up above. He jerked his head to the north. Nash said he thought the shots came from the house over there. I'm going over to have a look. I'll use Blake's section. They're almost there already. Split your section up north and south of us so that we shan't mask your fire. If there's anyone there, you can cover us. If they break for it, you can catch them on the flanks and you can use your mortar on the dead ground behind the house. 
Right, sir. Leyland turned at once and called to his section, and Bridgman and Bilting walked out into the hot midday sun and the open field. Walking steadily across the soft, sandy soil, he reflected on the advantages of having hand-picked men under his command, even although it was not his hand which had picked them. They understood things at once, and never wasted time with idle or irrelevant questions. Bilting walked in silence at his side, and a little behind him. His mind was busy behind his expressionless face. If there was anyone in that house, he and Bridgman were sitting ducks, but so they had been before they entered the wood. Anyone in the house would know there was a section in position only 70 yards from them, a section they had allowed to get into position without firing on it. Nash must be right. They had fired a few shots at the parachutists while they were in the air and then bolted when they hit the ground. Bridgman's gaze swung over and around the big house, standing in its own grounds opposite him. He was walking easily, but was ready to drop at the first shot or sign of the enemy. One half of his mind was occupied with the overall plan. Fifteen minutes would have been enough for their job, Half an hour was too long. It gave the enemy too much warning. Every German commander in the area must by now be working flat out to concentrate all available troops for a counterattack and to place as many men and as much armour as possible between the airborne men and the bridges over the Rhine. They were eight miles from their objective. It was too far. What happened at this stage was important, but what was of even more importance was how quickly the 1st Parachute Brigade could move into and through the town of Arnhem and onto the bridges. Allowing for time to regroup after landing, they could not start for another 45 minutes. In the circumstances, it was too long, but if things had not gone so well, it might not have been long enough. Perhaps it would have been better to have landed a company north and south of the road bridge in the streets of the town and accepted the casualties that would have been incurred. Gliders might have crash-landed even better. They dropped into a ditch beside Blake. Everything all right? Yes, sir. I thought those rifle shots came from somewhere around here, but we haven't seen anything. I was going to take the section in and have a look, but I saw you coming just as we were going to make a move. What do you think? Are we going in? Yes. Give me half your section. You take the left and I'll take the right. Take the bushes and the water tank as your two steps. I'll take the brick shed and the garden wall. We'll go in together from there. Take the mortar with you. The range is too short to use it here. They split the section and Blake's group crouched, ready to leap out and make the first run. Bridgman and Bilting, with the remaining five men, lined the ditch, their weapons trained on the most likely spots round the house. Bridgman nodded to Blake, craning his neck 30 yards up the ditch. In a second, the sergeant was out in the open, followed by his men, their heavy runs seeming incredibly slow to the watching officer. They covered the 20 yards and threw themselves down behind the bushes, but in the instant they dropped, a spandau opened up to the right. The low garden wall prevented the German gunner from directing his fire at the base of the bushes where Blake lay with his half-section. Leaves and twigs showered down on the sergeant and his men, and Blake grinned to himself and waited. He heard three grenades explode in quick succession, and at once he was on his feet, calling to his men to follow him to the water tank. As he rose, he heard the slower bursts of the Bren answering the quick snarl of the Spandau, and he guessed Bridgman and the remainder of the section were searching the area to the right of the building with their fire. Blake didn't stop at the tank, but kept on round to the back of the house, his men extended and well-spaced on each side of him. Under the cover of its gable end, he halted and gave his men fresh orders. Since he had got so far, he knew that the platoon commander would now stay where he was and attempt to keep the enemy gunner pinned. He could hear the far chatter of Leyland's Bren as it fired bursts into the upstairs windows of the house, unable to aim lower for fear of hitting their own men. The half-section pepper-potted, 
out from the cover of the wall, into the gardens at the rear of the house. They moved through the shrubbery in short, darting runs, each one of them covering another as he moved. By the time they reached the far end of the house, the Spandau had stopped firing. They halted and waited, their eyes straining to cut through the mixture of cover in front of them. Suddenly, two Germans broke from behind an old horse disc roller, running to the rear, one throwing down his rifle as he ran. Blake swung his Sten gun up into his shoulder, but someone to the right of him was quicker off the mark. Nine-millimetre bullets ripped into the running Germans. One of them dropped at once, the other continued for a few paces, running at an odd angle as if he were leaning away from the bullets, his head twisted to one side and his mouth open. Then he was ploughing forward into the ground and jerking over onto his back. Blake kept his eyes on the big roller. With his sten in his left hand, he waved his men down to the ground. With his right, he took a thirty-six grenade from his pouch. The roller was only 15 yards away, and the grenade had a four-second fuse. He drew the pin and released the striker, counting two before lobbing it gently into the air. He dropped to the ground, his gaze never leaving the twisting grenade. It disappeared behind the roller, and at once another German leaped to his feet and ran back, the Spandau in his right hand. Scruffy Butcher, the untidiest man in the platoon, dropped him with a rifle shot before he had covered three yards. He hit the ground in the instant the grenade exploded. There were no more Germans in the area of the house. The first two were dead. The man who had handled the Spandau was not, but he was badly wounded. For apart from the bullet through his chest, he had been hit in several paces about the buttocks and legs by fragments from the bursting grenade. Bridgman and Sergeant Blake looked down on him as one of the men bandaged his ribs. He was a warrant officer in his late forties, wearing ribbons earned in the First World War. Blake looked over his section and frowned. How many men did I leave with you in the ditch, sir? Five. With Biltig and myself, we were seven. Why, what's up? Matthews is missing. They found him in the bushes, back on the far side of the house. He must have been a fraction of a section behind the others in dropping to cover, and a bullet from the Spandau had entered his head through the hollow behind his right eye. His dead face looked on, only mildly surprised. Bridgman left Blake and his section in the area of the house, and he and Bilting made their way back to the main body of the platoon. Nash had joined Leyland on the eastern edge of the wood, and they stood together watching the platoon commander and his runner walking back across the open ground towards them. Nash was the older by seven or eight years, and he was the only regular soldier in the platoon. He was a big, solid man with a head of fair wavy hair and a strong lined face, his cheeks were slightly hollowed, but his lips and eyes were ready enough to smile if given the chance. Had he been less relaxed, he would not have been well accepted in the unit, for at one time Major Jordan had wondered if such a typical regular NCO would feel too much out of place in a unit which contained more university graduates among its ranks than it did among its officers. But Nash had proved a good enough soldier to shed his parade ground manner when in the field and yet still retain his grip on the men. He was unmarried and an orphan. Counting boys' service, he had been in the army for 18 years and he knew no other life. To Nash, a barrack room, a billet or a slip trench in the field were all the same. He glanced down from his greater height at Leyland's keen, intelligent face. He knew the section commander's mind worked much more quickly than his own, but he also thought that Leyland saw too much and dwelt too long on what he saw. He overcomplicated issues by giving too much consideration to the just possible but highly improbable. Bridgman and Bilting had reached the recognition letter halfway across the field. A warm September breeze had sprung up and lifted one arm of its length. They stopped and gathered stones to weigh it down. 
Leyland cursed softly under his breath. Nash grinned. Never mind, Eric. You can't think of everything. Leyland looked up at the platoon sergeant, his dark, good-looking face troubled. Christ almighty, we've had to weigh them down before. Just because there was no breeze when we set out, was no guarantee it would stay calm for the rest of the day. He spoke quietly, for he was careful never to allow his men to become aware of his doubts, or that he was troubled by any deficiency in himself. To them, he presented a controlled facade. It was important to him that they should never see it slip. Bridgman and Bilting trudged the last few yards to the wood, ankle-deep in the soft, dry soil. They were coated with a fine dust, and where it had mixed with the sweat on their faces, it showed black and channeled. They might have been in action for days. Nash spoke as they entered the wood. I was expecting you to come through on the 38, sir. There wasn't much we could do. You were too close. What's the damage, sir? Matthews and two Jerry's dead and an old Bosch warrant officer who will be shortly. They were lying to communication troops, all right. The house is some sort of store. It's a good thing we found them. That W.O. was one of the right sort. He'd have taken on the whole of the air landing brigade if we hadn't nailed him. Bren and rifle fire broke out to the north of them. They all froze and listened. There had been no firing from that direction for some time, and they tried to estimate the distance. Bridgman spoke more to himself than to the others. That's too near for the other LZs. It sounds as if Gorman might be in trouble. He turned to Nash. You'd better get up there and see what the matter is. Take over if necessary, but don't break wireless silence unless you have to. Back at his headquarters, Bridgman looked at his watch. Ten minutes to eight hour. He hoped that the enemy, who had been engaged by Gorman's section, were in no position to damage the landing. He would have liked to slip through the wood and contact Phil Ramsden just to find out how he was getting on, but there was too little time. He had heard no firing from the other side of the wood, and that was good. He looked up into the clear sky to the south. All firing had now ceased, and he might have been anywhere in a European countryside on a beautiful September day. He listened to the silence as his eyes searched the sky for the first sign of the Airborne Division's approach. He saw the first dots high up and over to the east, and then there were more in front of him, and yet more to the west. A minute later, the fighters roared overhead, banking away in every direction as they searched for German aircraft that might interfere with the landings. When he turned back from watching them, he caught his breath. The advance guard of the greatest airborne armada the world had ever seen had appeared in the south while his eyes had been on the fighters. The whole sky below the Nader Rhine was filled with aircraft. The block farthest to the west, well over 130 planes, was flying in tight formation. A great wedge-shaped phalanx of aircraft, their wingtips seeming almost to touch. 2,000 men of the 1st Parachute Brigade were arriving in their Dakotas. From directly in front of where he stood and slightly to the east came the gliders preceded by their tug aircraft, hundreds upon hundreds of planes filling the sky as far as he could see. He found himself laughing with relief. At his side, Bilting was jumping up and down in his excitement. And once, he slapped his platoon commander on the shoulder. I'm Anthony Scaramucci, former White House Director of Communications and Wall Street financier. And I'm Katty Kay, US Special Correspondent for BBC Studios. I've been covering American politics for almost three decades. Welcome to The Rest is Politics US, brought to you by Goalhanger. Go on, tell us, were those donations you made, like Obama in 2008, 
Was that idealism? Were you hoping to get something out of these campaigns that would serve your own business interests, for example? So I think this will either make this podcast incredibly successful, Caddy, or people <laughs> will be horrified and they'll shut it off right now because I'm going to be very real with you. The Obama donation, I had gone to law school with President Obama. We were not classmates. I was a few years ahead of him. It was 2007. He was then Senator Obama. I had a check in my breast pocket. I went over to the senator. I said, Senator, I said, you and I didn't really know each other in law school, but I'm about to hand you a big check. Can I lie to my friends and tell them that you and I knew each other in law school? (laughs) Well, Obama looks at me, had the best smile in American politics since Jack Kennedy. Forever. Yeah. He lights up. He looks at me and says, I'll tell you what, if you double the amount of the check, we'll take it back to Hawaii. Okay. And I looked at him. I said, you're done. I had another check in my pocket. I ripped it up. I doubled the amount of the check. And I'm going to tell you right now, I've been to more White House Christmas parties during the Obama administration than the Trump administration. In this pivotal year for the United States, democracy and world affairs, Britain's biggest podcast, The Rest is Politics, is launching stateside. Uncovering secrets from inside the Biden and Trump inner circles and how they shape the world's most important economy, but also the global economy too. New episodes are released every Friday morning. Just search The Rest is Politics US wherever you get your podcasts.